I've already had a great time rehearsing the gospel here this morning, and the reality is the gospel is, well, it's for unbelievers, but it's for believers too. <laughs> uh, Paul wrote Romans to the church, unpacking the gospel uh, because we need it. And I don't know about you, I need it. Uh, some weeks I, I'm more aware that I need it than others, <laughs> but uh, we, live in a, we live in a broken world and uh, we bring with us all the struggles of our lives and the frustrations and our own sinful propensities and uh, a sense of what, knowing what we deserve because of our sin. And um, we get to come together and rehearse God's good news uh, here this morning. So we're continuing our road trip through the Bible, uh, Route 66, considering the 66 books of the Bible this calendar year. Um, we step back into the story here at a crescendo moment. God has been working out his rescue plan, and we've been tracing that all the way back from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and thrust humanity into uh, sin and death. Uh, God made a promise that he would send a deliverer through Eve, uh, a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent, make all things right, and then that covenant was renewed Uh, sharpened a little bit more even when we get to Abraham. And God said, it's going to be through your descendants now, Abraham, that I'm going to bring blessing to the world. And God um, entered into a covenant with Abraham. He made him into a great nation, gave his descendants a land of their own. And uh, we catch a glimpse here in Kings of how God is going to use or could use Israel to, to bring blessing to the nations of the world. It's, it's really a high point uh, in the life of the nation. Now, uh, we, we uh, thought it was challenging to preach through one book in a message, and we're going to preach through two books in this message this morning. But actually, Kings is one book. Uh, it was only divided somewhat um, arbitrarily at a later time because they couldn't fit all the material into one scroll. Okay, so First uh, Kings just reads seamlessly into Second Kings to provide uh, a unified narrative here, telling the story of the kings who followed King David. So under David's leadership, the borders of Israel were expanded to their fullest extent. God gave them all the land that he had promised to give them. David ruled with justice and compassion and peace. Uh, And so David passes the baton here with high expectations. Israel is poised to fulfill its mission, to take the world stage, to be a beacon of hope for the world and to direct humanity to God. But instead we find Israel moving into a steep decline. Uh, One of the keys to understanding kings is to understand its original audience Kings was written from exile. So we have David, kind of the peak of the kingdom, and Kings traces the narrative to the time when uh, Israel is taken into exile, when Israel no longer exists as a nation. And so part of the purpose of the book is to ask the question, how in the world did we get here? (laughs) That's a pretty healthy question. It's one that I find myself asking on occasion, right? When I find myself in a predicament, usually of my own making. How in the world did I get here? What decisions did I make that brought me to this place? And so we get sort of a cautionary tale here 
as we consider the nation of Israel and their downfall. Uh, The story of kings could be considered in a couple of main sections, and so uh, we're just going to kind of work through the narrative and then pause at the end to reflect on some some takeaways, some lessons, and then a brief uh, gospel glimpse thinking about how the book of Kings points us ahead to Christ, as all the scriptures do. So first of all, Solomon's rise and fall. Chapters 1 through 11, we begin with what I'm calling an unlikely choice. And we step into the narrative here with a rather bizarre description of David's final days. 1 Kings chapter 1. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. So in an age before climate control and electric blankets... Right, We have uh, them finding a young woman to lie with the king to help him keep warm. The point in all of this is that David is in failing health. Right? He, he, he's, he's, he's in some measure of significant physical decline. And that prompts uh, a, a number of considerations here. Most Uh, important of which is who is going to succeed David as king. All of a sudden, this is being moved to the the, the front of the line. Uh, David had several wives, many sons. David's David's oldest sons, you might remember, Amnon and Absalom, uh, had died. That was part of the whole mess of David's sin and all the violence that, that flowed out of that. And so David's two oldest sons had had died, and Adonijah was the next oldest son. He was next in line to inherit the throne. And Adonijah made a play for the throne. He, He claimed it as his own. And Joab, David's military commander, actually went behind David's back to support Adonijah in his coup attempt. But David, interestingly enough, did not choose his oldest son. This would have been customary. This is just what you did. Uh, He would have been uh, the the wisest. Maybe he was the strongest or the tallest. We don't really know. Uh, But it seems that um, David learned from his own experiences, maybe, right? He was, David himself was the youngest son of Jesse. When Samuel came looking for a son, he came to Jesse's household, and he thought, The oldest son was the one, and God went all the way down through the line until he got to insignificant little David. And God said, that's my guy. And so David knew that that God didn't operate based on physical strength or uh, uh, ingenuity or or stature. So uh, David makes an unlikely choice to make Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, the next king. We also receive some of David's final words in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Act like a man. 
And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. And Solomon established his reign and acted courageously to administer justice in several very specific situations. So things got off to a good start. Uh, He had Joab, David's military commander, executed. Joab had aligned himself with Adonijah in that coup attempt, had, had betrayed David. And Joab had also committed two murders previously. And Solomon brought about justice in that situation with Joab. There was also a a situation regarding Abiathar, the priest, who also had betrayed David in regards to Adonijah. And Solomon had Abiathar removed from his position. These were just a couple little glimpses into some tough but just decisions that Solomon made, and the kingdom was firmly established in his hands. The Lord made a very interesting promise to Solomon here at the beginning of his reign. We read about this in chapter 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great mercy to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And to distinguish between right and wrong. The Lord, verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So one wish. What will it be, Solomon? Uh, you, you've, you've pleased me in the ways that you have acted. What is your one wish? And Solomon humbly asked, for wisdom, to be able to rule God's people well. God was so pleased with Solomon's request that he also promised to give Solomon unprecedented wealth and honor and long life. We have a great sort of summary statement about Solomon here at the end of chapter 4, verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Kalkal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls, 
He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Obviously, Solomon's practical insights are recorded for us in the book of Proverbs. He taught on the purpose of life and and worldview in Ecclesiastes, and he spoke about the beauty of love and sexual intimacy in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. So much of Solomon's writings comprise the, the poetry or the writings of the Hebrew Bible. God gave him that one wish, and he chose wisdom. Solomon did not forget to carry out his father's dream. David had one singular dream, and that was to build a temple for the Lord. Uh, Once David was established and he achieved peace on every side, uh, he wanted to build a permanent uh, uh, structure in which the Ark of the Covenant and the other uh, furniture of the tabernacle could be placed. At this point, again, they'd been going about uh, using a, a movable tent, right, or a tabernacle, uh, that's where the, God, the, the worship of, of God was, was to be centered. And David had a vision to create something grand and fitting for the one true God. And Solomon took on that, that legacy. Uh, David had been told, you're not the one to carry it out, but your son will carry it out. And Solomon followed through with that. We read about this in chapter 5. It was a massive project. took 13 years. Uh, and uh, they brought together these large stones, quarried uh, off-site and prepared off-site and brought to the temple ready to, to be placed together. We're told that there wasn't the sound of a chisel to be heard on the temple mount. So they moved these massive stones. By the way, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see one of the largest of those stones, uh, 44 feet long, 11 feet tall, weighing between 250 and 300 tons. I mean, just a, 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 a massive project. Went to great lengths to build it in a certain kind of way. And so Solomon gave great attention to this project and did it according to God's specifications. Of course, the, the last step in all that was to bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, into that new temple, and there's dedication that took place as part of that. Uh, we're told here in chapter 8, verse 10, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant in to the, the newly constructed temple, and they offer the sacrifices, and God shows up. <laughs> And just don't miss the significance of what the temple represents. Uh, the, the main decorations of the temple carved into the stone were palm trees and pomegranates, Middle Eastern fruit. Uh, the, the temple was to be a, a picture of the garden. It was to be a garden. Uh, remember, ever since Adam and Eve had been expelled from the garden, cast out from the presence of the Lord... Right? Humanity had been trying to get back into the garden, had been trying to get back into the presence of God, into the place of, of fullness and joy and satisfaction and peace. And here, 
God once again establishes his presence with his people. He lets them back into the garden. I mean, this is a this is a powerful, powerful scene. And, and, and Solomon seemed to grasp the significance of this, not just for Israel. Notice chapter 8, verse 41. As for the, this is part of Solomon's prayer to the Lord. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Israel was at the top of the mountain. I mentioned this is a climactic section. They had taken possession of the land that God had promised. God had given them peace on every side. God endowed Solomon with wisdom to lead the people in God's ways. The temple was now the the focal point of the nation. And in some sense, the focal point of the world. Notice verse uh, chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels, carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be, how happy your officials, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God. This is an African pagan queen who is coming to recognize the one true God of Israel. She uses not just a generic name for God, but she calls him the Lord, your God, Yahweh. This is Israel at the top. The nations were turning to Israel to encounter the one true God. But in the midst of his prosperity, Solomon's heart was led astray. He began to amass great wealth. He accumulated many chariots and horses. We're told about this in the latter portion of chapter 10. And most notably, in chapter 11, we're told that he accumulated many wives. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. 
as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Matter of fact, before Israel even had a king, back in Deuteronomy, right back in the law, in the Pentateuch, God had given instructions and guidelines and boundaries related to the behavior of their future kings. He said, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And in one fell swoop here, Solomon violated every one of those guidelines, those commands. And the result is a kingdom divided. A kingdom divided. Because of Solomon's sin, God determined to take the kingdom away from him. He sent a prophet to Solomon. We're told specifically that the prophet had a new cloak. This is not a new cloak, but it's a pretty nice shirt. And the prophet actually went up to Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's officials. And he took off his new, the prophet took off his new cloak there in front of Jeroboam, and he tore the cloak. He actually tore it into 12 pieces. There's something really satisfying about this. Twelve pieces, and he gave ten of those pieces to Jeroboam. And he said, Jeroboam, you're going you're gonna to be the king over ten of the tribes of Israel. Uh, God was going to preserve two of the tribes uh, under David's line because he had promised to maintain a king on David's line. But the kingdom was going to be destroyed. And I just, I couldn't help but notice this week as I was looking at that text. It was a new cloak. I have to be honest, I didn't want to use this shirt. I I really like this shirt. It brings out the blue in my eyes. No, um, but I just really like this shirt. I, I went for a, I went for a second, a secondary shirt out of my closet to bring in this morning. Right? But this was a new cloak. Uh, that, that the prophet brought uh, and just communicated. This is Israel, a beautiful new garment, and it's destroyed. I mean, this was the, this was the, the, the vivid imagery here. So Jeroboam would lead the ten northern tribes, the, this red-shaded section here, and they would become known as Israel. And then the two southern tribes uh, would be known as Judah. Uh, Judah would still be headquartered, have their capital city in Jerusalem, but the northern tribes would establish a new capital in Samaria. So Jeroboam, one of Solomon's officials, would take the, 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 the throne in the north, and Rehoboam, one of Solomon's sons, would take the throne in the south. But it was a divided kingdom. 
Now, Jeroboam, this first king over the the northern tribes, was a shrewd leader. He fortified his borders, so that whole animosity between Israel and Judah was set in stone now. But he also made a very calculated decision that would impact the worship of the northern kingdom for years to come. Of course, God had called for centralized worship in Israel. Right? You wouldn't just worship God or offer sacrifices anywhere you wanted to. You were to go to the temple or the tabernacle, which was now in Jerusalem. And the priests, the, the descendants of the tribe of Levi, were to be involved in, in, in all of that. This, this is how God had structured that. But Jeroboam knew that if his people in the north traipsed down to Jerusalem, down into the southern kingdom, every time they wanted to worship, and they were required to go there at least three times a year, according to the law, that they would ultimately give their allegiance to the southern king, to Rehoboam. So Jeroboam established two rival locations for worship in the north, in the cities of Bethel and Dan. And not only did Jeroboam disobey God's instructions about location, he also violated the instructions for how God was to be worshipped. He created golden calves, bulls, which were symbols of strength and fertility in the ancient world, particularly in Egypt. Matter of fact, you'll remember when the, the Hebrew slaves came out of Egypt and Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law that they created a golden calf This would have been a carryover from their time in Egypt. They imported some of those thoughts and and ideas from uh, from Egypt. Interestingly enough, Jeroboam, before he took control of the ten northern tribes, had spent a time in Egypt as an exile and undoubtedly again brought back some of these notions with him, constructs these golden calves. This came to be known as the sin of Jeroboam. And we see it over and over and over again down through the generations. It would set a tragic trajectory for Israel. The book of Kings is well named for in addition to Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, we are introduced to 40 other kings. The narrative is given chronologically, so we go back and forth between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. It makes for rather confusing reading. It's good to have a chart next to you to keep it all straight. The vast majority of those kings were overtly evil, and things are in constant turmoil. Matter of fact, in the north, there were nine distinct dynasties. And all but one of them were established by assassination. (laughs) They killed the previous king. So there's death and violence and disruption all over the place. One of the worst of those kings was a man by the name of Ahab. We read about him in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. There's our Jeroboam, right? Uh, All the things that he introduced were several generations down the line now, and Ahab is carrying those things over. 
He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Elbaal, at Baal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So not only did Ahab continue the twisted, distorted worship of Yahweh, but he also introduced formally the worship of foreign gods, particularly Baal. He married a, a, a woman, Jezebel, who uh, was a worshiper of Baal, and he introduced that into Israel's worship. Uh, the postscript here uh, of Ahab's reign is so profound. Verse 34, in Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of, its first, of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. So a little history here. He takes him back. Jericho was the very first city that Israel conquered when they entered into the promised land. And God had very specific requirements regarding Jericho. You're not to take any of the plunder, right? This city is devoted to me. I receive the first of all that you take in this new land. And so that city was devoted to the Lord. And it was not to be rebuilt. Matter of fact, there was an ominous warning pronounced on anyone who would seek to rebuild God's possession. And that came to pass during the reign of Ahab. It seems rather fitting. It was a complete disregard for God and his laws uh, during this time under Ahab's leadership. So it's like a broken record. It just keeps going over and over again. Uh, Ahab is just one of the classic examples. Uh, then there's a, a time in which the prophets come onto the scene. It's right around the time of Ahab here when things are court, sort of at their worst. God uh, sends the prophets to turn the people from their destructive course. Elijah and Elisha are the two main prophets. Um, and just a couple of, of high points that I think speak to their, their ministry. Uh, there was a time of famine. Elijah, the prophet, had told King Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. And so for three and a half years, it didn't rain. Obviously, food became scarce. God provided for Elijah in a really unique way. He sent him north across Israel's border to the city of Sidon on the Mediterranean Sea and provided for him through a widow there. This woman uh, is preparing to have a last meal with her son before they die because there's no more food. She has just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left. And she's preparing for their last meal. And Elijah, the prophet, comes to her and asks her to make a little bread for him first. And Elijah promises that your flour and oil will not run out. And amazingly, this woman believed this prophet from Israel. This foreign woman. She responded in faith and God provided for Elijah and for the widow. Jesus would actually comment on this later. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you.
that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. What Jesus is saying here is that there were no widows in Israel who would believe the word of a prophet sent from the Lord. So God had to send Elijah out of the country to find a widow who would believe the Lord. I mean, this is an indictment on this generation. We're most familiar with Elijah because he challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and saw God bring about a great victory there. Amazingly, Ahab and Jezebel still refused to turn from Baal. Elijah was demoralized and depressed, so depressed that he actually left Israel and went back to Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, where God had first met with his people and gave them his law. And Elijah has a pity party there on Mount Sinai. He says, God, I'm the last of the prophets and no one's listening to me. So this whole thing, this whole experiment is over. (laughs) Where do we go from here? And God says, are you finished whining? And uh, there's a really unique scene there where God says, I, I, I've reserved many others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And most notably, Elisha, who would be Elijah's apprentice, who would take the, the, the baton from Elijah. God, God sent along others to encourage Elisha during this time, Elijah during this time. But there's a unique scene where God sends a whirlwind and an earthquake and fire And Elijah's looking for God in all of these things. And then finally God speaks to Elijah in a still small voice. And uh, Elijah, like us, is often looking for shock and awe, right? We're looking for God to do big things. And God communicates to Elijah that he is still at work, even though it might not seem like it. We think of all that Jesus talked about, the nature of God's kingdom. A mustard seed, right? Begins as a mustard seed. It's like leaven in the bread that works its way through. Uh, Elijah needed that reminder. And then uh, Elisha, um, one particularly notable account of his ministry was captured for us in 2 Kings chapter 5. has to do with Naaman, again, a foreign military commander. This man had contracted leprosy, an incurable disease, and there was a poor, uh, abducted Jewish servant girl who was living in Naaman's household, and she directed him to the God of Israel. And Naaman is kind of brought to the end of himself. He goes to Israel, which would have been a little bit of, there would have been a little bit of swallowing of his pride, but he brought all his money with him. He was going to pay for his cure, but Elisha wouldn't take any of his money. And Elisha sends him to the dirty Jordan River to, to wash himself seven times. And Naaman at first balks at it. This is, this is ridiculous. Uh, uh, this is below me. But finally Naaman sheds his pride and goes down into that river and is healed from his leprosy. Again, a wonderful picture of what is involved in saving faith. Right? That we, we have to lay aside our pride Uh, We have to come as beggars to receive God's good gifts, the gift of salvation and healing. And Jesus would cite 
Naaman as well. Uh, in that same context of Luke 4. And there were many people in lepr- many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Again, uh, there were no lepers in Israel that had the type of faith that Naaman had, that would hear the word of a prophet of the Lord. So these things all just tell us how bad things were in Israel, how much, not only the kings, but the people, the widows, had turned away from the Lord. So God kept sending prophets to warn the people, to call them back. The latter portion of Kings uh, describes the beginning of the end. Justice is served. Uh, God had promised Elijah that he would bring an end to the line of Ahab. Elijah was having his pity party saying, Ahab's winning and, and all the prophets are dead. And, and God said, I'm gonna, I'll take care of Ahab. I'll take care. Don't you worry about Ahab. <laughs> and God raised up another king by the name of Jehu here. Uh, to bring about judgment on Ahab's household and all those who followed Baal. We have uh, double deportation. Again, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were both taken into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted uh, an extra 130 years, but at the end of the day, they both were carted off into exile. And then the book closes with Uh, Just a very concise statement about God's divine preservation. Chapter 25, verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awal Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. Just a little subtle reminder that the story is not over. (laughs) And the line of David is preserved in the midst of these dark days. So how did we get here, right? We are, ought to be reminded here of the consequences of sin. And we could give testimony ourselves of the consequences of sin in our own lives. But certainly it's played out here in the nation of Israel as a cautionary tale for us. A couple of brief lessons. Prosperity is a greater test of our faith than adversity. Uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and many of the other kings, including Uzziah, who we didn't talk about today, Uh, ended up getting in trouble later in life. They started off well with good intentions, and gradually their hearts were led astray by prosperity uh, through friendships, in Solomon's case through foreign wives who worshipped other gods. Uh, I think a powerful question for us to ask, what are you doing to guard your heart against pride and pleasure and overconfidence. We sometimes think of persecution being, oh, I, how would I respond in times of persecution? Will I, will I stand up under uh, that intense scrutiny when in some cases the greater danger is prosperity? How are you dealing with prosperity? <laughs> are you taking steps to guard your heart? 
Number two, consider the legacy you're leaving for your family. We could talk about Solomon, certainly, and his sins that had repercussions. But I'm thinking of this Jeroboam character who became the first king in, in, in northern Israel. And at least 14 different times we are told about or reflecting on the sin of Jeroboam. I mean, every generation down through uh, history here, Jeroboam put something in motion. He left a legacy uh, that was not a good one. And we have to consider the ripple effects of our lives. When we sin, when we turn from the Lord, it doesn't just affect us. It affects the generations that will follow us. And uh, the Bible talks a lot about or we see generational sin, right? So we have to take some good stock. What type of a legacy are we leaving for those who will come after us? I love this one, Moms Matter. The narrator reveals the mother for nearly all of the kings of Judah. The godly kings all had mothers who were from Jerusalem or the Judean provinces. And this is in contrast to the kings who had foreign mothers who worshipped other gods. Mothers played an undeniable role in the trajectory of the king. I think that's a tremendous exhortation to parents and specifically to the role of moms. Respond to God's warning while there is still time. God eventually sent his people into exile, right? There's the big picture. But notice how long it took God to do it. He sent prophets. He waited hundreds of years before he pulled the trigger on his judgment. And we are told repeatedly, even into the New Testament, uh, not to presume upon God's kindness. God is patient. He's unwilling that any should perish, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is waiting. He's giving opportunity for people to respond. Don't harden your heart. There's a day of judgment coming for us as there was for the, day, the people of, of, of Israel's day. Understand that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Pray that we would, unlike Israel, heed God's warnings while there is still time. Don't harden your heart. Finally, God is still carrying out his plan, even when it doesn't seem like it. Elijah needed that reminder when it seemed like the wheels had fallen off, and we need that reminder too when it seems like the wheels have fallen off in our own world, in our own culture. Uh, God is at work behind the scenes. Not always shock and awe, not always showing up in the fire and the earthquake and the whirlwind, but oftentimes showing up in the gentle whisper, working behind the scenes to carry out his purposes. The glory of Solomon is but a pale comparison to the glory of Christ. In Solomon, we get a wonderful picture of the kingdom at its zenith and the beauty and prosperity and the wisdom and the peace and the justice that prevailed. Uh, but as wonderful as that was, it's just a little glimpse of the kingdom that Christ is going to establish, uh, a forever kingdom. And so Solomon, in a, in a weird sort of way, points us ahead to Christ. Christ. 